0: I'm Glaser, Director of the Asia Program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. On today's podcast, we're going to examine several international trends and their strategic significance. We'll talk about the implications of the war in Ukraine for the global order and for the Indo-Pacific in particular, the consequences of the growing strategic alignment between China and Russia, the possible endgame of us china strategic competition and perhaps about Southeast Asia's future if we have time. I can think of no one better to have this conversation with than my guest today, Ambassador Bilahari Kasakan, Bilahari is a former ambassador at large in Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Prior to that, he served as the second permanent secretary and then permanent secretary of the Foreign Ministry. And during his career, he's held a variety of appointments, including as Singapore's permanent rep to the UN in New York and as ambassador to the Russian Federation. Currently, Bilahari is chairman of the Middle East Institute, which is affiliated with the National University in Singapore. Welcome to the China Global Podcast. Podcast, Hi,
1: Bonnie. Good to see you again.
0: So let's dig into this. Some experts maintain that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is going to result in a change in the global balance of power and in world politics. Do you think we're at an inflection point that will eventually see the emergence of the post-Cold War world
1: order? You know, I have always been very puzzled by this idea which precedes the war in Ukraine of the return of great power competition. Whoever said it ever went away. And this just confirms it never went away. If there's a change in the balance of power, it is, I think, in the favor of the West. You have Europe finally, after many decades, taking its defense seriously. And it took Putin to make it do that rather than many US presidents who have tried and failed. Right, Of course, Europe uh, is not as cohesive as it likes to pretend to be, but it's certainly much more cohesive and much more serious about its defense now, particularly Germany, which has fundamentally changed, I think. Um The Transatlantic Alliance has been um, reinvigorated, as is the whole idea of the West. And Russia, I mean, Mr. Putin made a stupendous strategic miscalculation, and it's going to haunt him for decades to come, I think. And China blindly followed Mr. Putin down this uh, strategic dead end. Uh, China is not going to be in as dire situation as Russia, obviously, but it's going to be saddled with a partner that's a liability for the foreseeable future. So a change is a change for the better as far as the West is concerned. Now, has it changed fundamentally global politics? As I said, the idea that there was a period where great power competition went away is connected to this foolish idea that the Western definition of international order is the only possible definition. But international order has always been contested, except for a very short historical period, maybe between 1991 and 2008-2009, when the global financial crisis broke out, China misread it and began to prematurely flex its muscles. So I think it has really accentuated existing trends rather than fundamentally
0: change things. Let's talk about the implications of the Ukraine war for the Indo-Pacific. After the war broke out, we had uh, Singapore, Japan, and Taiwan uh, very quickly agree with the United States and other countries in Europe and some Australia and and Canada as well to implement sanctions on, on Russia. It's obvious why the Europeans immediately did that. It's not so obvious why countries in Asia would. So what are the implications of the war for the Indo-Pacific? How is it being viewed? And and what what are the lessons that countries in the Indo-Pacific should draw from this conflict?
1: The first lesson is to underline, underscore something that we have always been more conscious of in the Indo-Pacific than Europeans have, which is that this is a dangerous world, as I said earlier. It's a world of uh, great power competition. Now, I think if you look at the Indo-Pacific, I think it would be a mistake to define this as a contest between uh, the Western idea of democracy and authoritarianism. Right. First of all, both are protein terms and they're different versions. And it's better to look at interests. Uh, why Japan did what it did, why Australia did what it did, and why Singapore did what it did are not necessarily the same reasons. Right, We, as a small country, are obviously very sensitive to this idea that might is right. And if you're bigger than me and you don't like my face, you can go and rearrange it by force. Right, So that's obvious, right? That's why we did this. And this is uh, such an egregious violation of some very fundamental norms of international relations. Norms that are often more honoured in the breach than, than in the observance, that we had to do something. It's not the first time we have put unilateral sanctions. We did the same when Vietnam invaded Kampuchea in the 1980s. And it's exactly more or less the same issue, in principle. I mean, the circumstances are very different. Japan is a treaty ally of the US, uh, and I don't think you would have given it much choice. So they volunteered before they were (laughs) volunteered, right? And you can go on why different countries had different positions or nuances between different positions. So I I think um, one should not overread the impact of this on the Asia-Pacific. Again, it accentuates existing trends rather than fundamentally changes anything.
0: So I want to ask you about Russia-China relations. Um, For many years, I think people didn't pay very much attention to the Russia-China relationship. There was this uh, common descriptor uh, that it was a marriage of convenience, um, I'm not sure if that was really ever the case. I think there's always been some shared interest, but it is clear um, in the last couple of years, and especially since February 4th when Xi Jinping met with Vladimir Putin on the eve of the Olympics and signed this incredibly long joint statement um, that these two countries uh, have shared interest. Uh, but some people really emphasize that it is primarily led by the very close relationship between leaders, between Xi Jinping and Putin himself. Um, and I wonder whether you think um, that it is primarily that relationship. If if Putin were to be ousted from power, would the relationship continue to be as close as it is today? And, and how worried should we be about this growing alignment between China and Russia?
1: Look, Personal relations between leaders in any relationship, not just China-Russia relationship, facilitate things if there's already a convergence of interests. They can't change the definition of interest, not if the the leaders are responsible people in their countries. right? Um, So I think that's one factor, but not the most important factor. The most important factor is a convergence of interests. They are both countries that are uncomfortable with a Western definition of international order, right? And and challenge it in different ways. Russia much more so than China, because China is actually, uh, in many ways, particularly economically, a beneficiary of the Western-led globalization order, right? But they want, they are for both for different reasons or or parallel reasons, I would say, um, dissatisfied powers. China less dissatisfied than Russia, but both dissatisfied. So I think they will stick together. You know, you look at China, right? It does not have any other partner who is dissatisfied with the international order of the same strategic weight as Russia. Who? (laughs) Nobody. North Korea, North Korea, China. North Korea, sometimes I I know, actually, because I've talked to them often. They probably distrust China more than they distrust the United States. Okay, (laughs) right? Pakistan, Pakistan is a liability. (laughs) Right? It's always on the verge of falling apart. (laughs) Doesn't quite fall apart because the military both causes it to fall apart and pulls it together, right? Uh, So who else? You know, some country, uh, um, what, Cambodia, Laos? (laughs) All right, good luck, you know, if these are your partners. So they'll stick together because of a convergence of interests. Since
0: Russia's uh, first attack on Ukraine, It's my sense that China has really tried to balance competing interests. Um, It wants to preserve its relationship with Russia. It doesn't want to inflict uh, very heavy damage on its relationship with the United States and and other Western countries, and particularly Europe. And it also wants to uphold sovereignty and territorial integrity, uh, which, of course, you know, have been these longstanding tenets of Chinese uh, foreign policy. Some people are arguing that China will eventually be forced to take sides, that it won't be able to continue to balance these interests. And I'm not so sure.
1: What do you think? Well, I think it is. China is certainly in a very awkward spot, right? It's in a fix because the three goals it has, which you just defined, and I'll go a bit further and say it doesn't want to get entangled in the unprecedented sanctions that have been levied against Russia. They are mutually incompatible. Uh, but that does not mean that they cannot be balanced. It's in a very awkward situation. It's walking a fine and precarious line. And I think that line can, will not become less fine or, or less precarious. But I don't think it would abandon Russia for the reasons you know I, I, I mentioned a moment ago. There's no other strategic partner of equal weight anywhere in the world. So they are stuck with each other, whether they like it or not.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the implications for a possible Chinese attack on Taiwan. There's lots, lots of people who draw these parallels between the situation in Russia-Ukraine and between China-Taiwan, and of course there are there are many differences, but but there are also some interesting parallels. So how um, how might this conflict impact the? Uh, the Chinese Communist Party's, and particularly, of course, Xi Jinping's calculus regarding uh, Taiwan. Ever since 2017 at the 19th Party Congress, mm-hmm. Xi Jinping said uh, then, and he's repeated, that reunification is a requirement for national rejuvenation. That's the Chinese de- dream. And there's this target date of the of mid-century. And as you know, there's been growing concern in the United States and other countries about the possibility of even near-term use of force, maybe even as soon as 2027, which I think is not my assessment of the PLA's 2027 goal, but we'll set that aside. So will the Ukraine war make Beijing more cautious about using force or less cautious?
1: Look, you know, I think Mr. Xi Jinping will go down in Chinese history as one of the worst foreign policy leaders uh, or emperors that China has ever had, right? Whatever his other achievements may be, right? And among his many mistakes was to set a timeline on reunification. Previous leaders, after you know, after the Korean War had to put back everything, said this is a matter for future generations to settle, and that's very wise, right? Now he has set implicitly but clearly enough a timeline because the China dream would probably have to be achieved, implied very strongly by the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the PRC. That's 27 years ahead, right? 27 years is not a very long time, but it's not a short time either. I take comfort from the fact that Mr. C is exactly one year older than me, uh, within days. And I thought, where will I be in 27 years? Probably dead. Or if not dead, probably not very compostmentist. is And, you know, as powerful as he is, he can't stop aging. right? So he probably won't be in charge 20, uh, 2049, sorry, probably not. So there's some time, right? So let's not get too excited. As you said, there are similarities between Ukraine and Taiwan, but there are also, I think, much more important differences. First of all, don't wish to be harsh. But you know, Taiwan is a far more important node in the global economy, and uh, and and strategically in the in East Asia, than Ukraine is in the global economy. I mean, it's not insignificant, particularly in agriculture and so on. So I think the political context is also quite different. You know better than me, living in Washington DC, that if there's one thing there is a bipartisan consensus on in this country, it is China or being tough on China, right? Uh, Secondly, the nature of the American alliance system is fundamentally different in Europe than in East Asia. Europe is a multilateral alliance, NATO, right? And so NATO can, and correctly so, stay out of direct involvement uh, and still remain NATO. In fact, NATO has been rejuvenated by staying out, you know? But I think the series of bilateral alliances that make up the American alliance system in East Asia... Will be fundamentally shaken if the US doesn't do something, if there is an unprovoked attack on Taiwan. I underline unprovoked because Taiwanese are not angels either. You know, they have been known to do provocative things. And if they said let us say unilaterally declare independence, right? That's a different scenario from China attacking. But I hope, I hope what has happened is to make the PLA reflect carefully on its own assessment of its own capabilities because a kind of amphibious operation of the kind that would be needed to capture Taiwan is infinitely more difficult than a land-based operation across borders, and the Russians messed that up <laughs> royally. I hope also, and probably more significantly, Mr. C and other top leaders, and whoever succeeds Mr. C eventually, uh, will reflect very carefully about what their generals have been telling them. Um, Because they have the same kind of system in Putin's Russia and Xi's China, where everything funnels to a potential single point of failure. And there's good reason to doubt or to question the quality of information that is being fed upwards. So I hope they will draw that kind of lesson from it.
0: I certainly hope so too. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things uh, that, is being discussed, I think, really around the world is how the United States is handling China's rise. We've been talking about this for many years. And the Biden administration came in and some people believe that um, there might be a change from the Trump administration. But as it's turned out, the Biden administration has inherited quite a bit from the Trump administration. And I think that the Chinese have concluded that the United States now has a bipartisan consensus and that we are implacably hostile toward China's rise. And, and, and I, I worry about the implications of that. What I'd really like to hear is maybe your critique of how the Biden administration is handling China. What, what is it doing right? What is it doing wrong?
1: Well, I think that there are very few fundamental differences between the Trump approach and the Biden approach. The most important one being a more consultative approach towards allies uh, and friends and partners, right? But I keep reminding people in my neck of the woods, uh, the Biden administration is not consulting you because of your good looks and natural charm or the pleasure of your company. They're consulting you to find out what you are prepared to do <laughs> with it uh, in this big strategic issue of China. Now, we don't have to do everything that the US wants, but you have to define parameters of what you are prepared to do and what you are not prepared to do. Both are equally important. So, and I think, you know, the more consultative approach is to be welcome. Before Biden took office, one concern throughout East Asia, and not always articulated, but was there, will Biden be Obama 2.0? Which made wonderful speeches and had nice slogans like the pivot, but was rather hesitant to use hard power. And all the issues regarding China in the Indo-Pacific, whether in the Himalayas, in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, are essentially hard power issues. Uh, So you have to set that benchmark or that marker, that boundary, before you do anything else. What I would like, and I think all of us would like to see um, the US do, uh, in addition to what it's already been doing, is, I think, to stabilize the competition. Competition is a fact of life. It will go, it'll go on. You can't stop it. China's rise is a geopolitical fact. Yeah, it's there. It's happened. And there will be adjustments. It has influence. You are competing for influence. But can you stabilize that? Can you compete at a lower level of tension with less risk of accidents and so on? Uh, that's one thing. The other thing which I think Americans in this city... In Washington, D.C., I've heard Ed Niosum from Singapore in particular, is that the missing piece in your strategy is an economic piece. Trade is strategy in our part of the world. However, I would always qualify it that the missing piece is a multilateral piece. Bilaterally, the U.S. is still a vitally important economic partner to almost all of us. So I think you need to balance that a little bit. I don't think the politics is going to allow you to do anything multilateral on the trade front, right? Um, not for the foreseeable future, but perhaps you can do something small uh, within the new Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is at least an acknowledgement that there is a missing piece, which the previous administration would not even acknowledge, right? In fact, was rather proud of taking that piece off the table. Uh-uh. So I would like to see a bit more guardrails for for the competition. And that's a, that's a nice analogy. I think we like to see that. And we like to see you do what is politically possible on the economic front.
0: If you look out maybe five, 10, 15 years, do you think that there is an outcome to this US-China strategic competition? Do you think it ends with China having a regional hegemony, global primacy, um, is there going to be a winner and a loser? What, what do you think happens as this competition continues? Is there an endgame?
1: No, I don't think there is going to be any clear-cut denouement as there was between the U.S.-Soviet competition. And there's a very fundamental reason for that. U.S.-Soviet competition is competition between two systems uh, that were connected only tangentially, right? The U.S. and China are both vital, irreplaceable parts of a single global system. Neither is particularly comfortable with it, but this is the reality. I don't think this system is going to bifurcate completely. There will be partial bifurcation. There already has been uh, in areas with national security implications, and there will be more of that. But for it to completely separate into two systems is highly, so highly improbable that I don't think it's a realistic thing to think about. And competition within a system is not going to end in any clear-cut denouement because it's not a question of one part replacing another part, but both parts working out some kind of competitive interdependence, managing competition within interdependence. And that's much more complicated, it's not binary, and it's very unlikely in my mind to end up in one or the other being clearly dominant. We are stuck with both of you, whether we like it or not.
0: Let's turn to talk a little bit about um, attitudes in Southeast Asia toward the U.S. and China, whether they're shifting and how they're shifting. I was reading when it first came out the uh, annual survey that the Institute for Southeast Asian uh, study does, which, of course, surveys elites in all uh, 10 ASEAN countries. It's not necessarily average publics. But it found that Southeast Asian trust in the United States remains fairly high. Um, It's, uh, I think, almost 43% of the respondents said that they're confident or very confident in the U.S. as a strategic partner. But notably, that was a drop of 12 points from the prior year. So what factors contributed to this decrease? Is this an enduring trend we should be worried about?
1: I think this thing fluctuates up and down. If you look at the trust in China, it is... Or the lack of trust in China, you look at the same survey, it has been very consistently high, lack of trust, right? Ever since they started this survey, right? Now, look, you know, this is, this is the new world or the, or the new of competition within systems. As I said, not I wasn't joking. We are stuck with both of you, whether we like it or not. I think there is the fluctuation you saw in the latest survey, the, the lowering of trust in the US. I think. Represents a return to reality after over high expectations of the Biden administration. There was this rather simplistic idea that that is not Trump, so all will be well, right? Uh, which which is not true, right? Because they are they are fundamental issues. I think China, by virtue of its proximity, its contiguity, its size, its economic weight is always going to exercise significant influence in Southeast Asia. But for precisely those same reasons, its contiguity, its size, its economic weight, is always going to raise anxieties in Southeast Asia. Huh? And it's done very little under the present Chinese leadership to assuage those anxieties. In fact, it's <laughs> exacerbated them. Therefore, I think, although not very many countries will be prepared to say so, Singapore being an exception, Uh, there's a better appreciation of the vital role that the United States plays in balancing. Without the U.S., there is no balance, right? If you look at what Southeast Asian countries do rather than what they say, you can see that almost all of them have enhanced their defense and security relationships in quiet ways, in different ways with the United States. There's a better appreciation that what Singapore has been saying since the 1960s, that, you know, the U.S. is a vital part of any balance in East Asia. It's not an eccentric Singaporean view, but a strategic reality. Remember, Bonnie, when we offered the use of our facilities and signed an MOU to that that effect in 1990, commotion broke out among our neighbours, right? The reaction was hysterical, as if we had kidnapped their firstborn and sold it into slavery, you know, (laughs) right? When we renewed that agreement in 2019 uh, with full publicity, not a whimper. And when we signed a strategic framework agreement with the U.S. in 2005, that considerably enhances our defense and security cooperation with the U.S., not a whimper. Uh, So there is a better appreciation, but within that appreciation, things will fluctuate up and down year-on-year according to what happens.
0: And what about attitudes in the region toward China? Do you think that they are changing or they will also just continue to go? No, I think that they will
1: always be ambivalent. We will always recognize that China is an important geopolitical fact and economically will get more important. But for that precise reason, we will always have anxieties about China, which we will need to balance by, by having relationship with the US, Japan, Australia, India, and so on. And I think that is the existential condition of Southeast Asia.
0: And as the Chinese put pressure, for example, on India along the border and uh, operate their military aircraft in Taiwan's air defense identification zone, does Southeast Asia see this as as a potential lesson that this indicates that China might actually use force? Or are countries in Southeast Asia primarily just concerned about what
1: happens in their immediate? Well, of course, like all countries, we are more concerned about what happens in our immediate region, right? You know, it's not very much we can do up in the Himalayas or even in the East China Sea or, or anywhere else, right? But I think people notice these things uh, and draw the appropriate lessons from them. Uh, almost all Southeast Asian countries, unlike Europe, has been enhancing their defense capabilities for years. You know this, right? Right, uh, and I think. China is not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. And they have used force in the South China Sea, as you know. Not deadly force, but still force.
0: (laughs) What do you think is the future of ASEAN? Do you think that this institution will be playing a more important role in the future or less important?
1: ASEAN's enduring, important, vital role is to manage relations between its members. Stability in, in bilateral relations in Southeast Asia is not to be taken for granted. Uh, ASEAN is not a happy band of brothers singing in perfect harmony. If we were a happy band of brothers with perfect harmony, there would be no need for ASEAN. It is precisely because we are not, we need some form of regional mechanizing to, to do what we can to stabilize relationships. And in that, it has been pretty successful. In managing external relationships, The record is mixed and has always been mixed. We are going through a particularly bad patch right now because the domestic politics of some key ASEAN countries is in flux. And this is not the best time for people to focus their attention outwardly. And ASEAN is an interstate organization. It can do no more than what its members are prepared to do. Uh, this will, this will wax and wane, right? We are now waning, but you know, we have waned before and we have waxed again and, and this will happen. Um, I think the the main point is the point I made earlier, which is ASEAN has not yet sufficiently internalized. And that is, if the Biden administration is more consultative, it's not for the sheer pleasure of your company, but to see what you're prepared to do with it, right? In other words, it's a more polite form of transactionalism. (laughs) You are not going to remain central in the strategic calculations of any major power, by just repeating over and over again, I am central, I am central, I am central, right? Nor are you going to be central just because other powers politely say you are central. You have to be central by doing something. Now, as I said, we don't have to do everything the US wants any more than we have to do everything that the Chinese want. But we have defined parameters of what we are prepared to do and we're not prepared to do. Otherwise, you are going to be marginalised, as is already happening. That The US is acting much more bilaterally in Southeast Asia, it's not going to abandon ASEAN. You will still turn up at meetings and, and so on, you know, and everybody will be polite and there will be nice photographs and so on. But you look at uh, what happened. Huh? Uh, Thailand has been bypassed twice by Secretary of Defense Austin and Vice President Kamala Harris, right? And they are wringing their hands in despair. And I and they asked me, why were we bypassed, Whereas they went to Singapore and Vietnam, both of us are formally non-aligned. I said because it's no point just being a treaty ally and sitting there and doing nothing. You have to. You don't have to do everything that the US wants you to do, but you have to do something. Otherwise, be prepared to be bypassed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been uh, uh, an enjoyable conversation, and I want to thank you for your no, sage fun. wisdom and advice. I'm not so
1: sure it's wisdom, <laughs> but sage in the sense of old. I am getting older. That's true. <laughs>
0: we've been talking with ambassador villahari Kausakan, who for many years had senior uh, positions in Singapore's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and has continues to be a leading strategic thinker so thank I, you again. I
1: hardly think I hardly think so <laughs>
0: <laughs> thanks for your okay. credit